Our sermon is entitled John the Baptist. We're going to be looking at uh, John 1 verses, kind of weird, uh, 6 through 8, and then 15, and then 19 through 28. So, a little strange. If we kind of look at the first 34 verses of the book of John, which is what we're going through this Advent season, it kind of... um, yeah, John the Baptist is a recurring character, but he kind of happens in a few different, different places. And so um, we're going to kind of smush together all of the mentions that we see of John the Baptist in those uh, sermons and kind of take a look at him this morning. Last week, we looked at um, Jesus as God, right? So, so the first five verses of the first chapter of the Gospel of John... We looked and saw that Jesus, according to John, according to the Apostle John, Jesus is uh, fully divine. Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. He's existed in eternity past. He's the sovereign creator of all things. He's the source of all light and life for his people. Uh, And this morning we're going to look at John the Baptist. We're going to look at uh, the mission that God called him to. And we're going to look at how he kind of leaned into and obeyed and was faithful to uh, that mission that God called him to. And we're going to consider how the ministry that God called John the Baptist to might inform and might be relevant for and might serve as an example for uh, us as the people of God uh, today. So uh, you can follow along on the, on the screen or in your bulletin, or you can uh, grab your Bible. It's on page 833 if you're, if you're reading along there. So we'll read through it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll just um, jump right in and get to work. <clears throat> Starting in verse 8, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And you skip down to verse 15. It says, John bore witness about him, the, the light. John bore witness about him, and he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And we skip down to verse 19, and we'll kind of go through the, the end of, of uh, verse 28. It says, And this is the testimony of John. Uh, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across from the Jordan, uh, where John was baptizing. All right, let's pray, and then let's get to work. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you. For the gift of your word. God, we don't ever want to take for granted the privilege that it is to have a Bible, to, to have um, 
experience the word of God having been spoken to us and to be able to possess it and to, to have it with us, to read it together, to study it together. God, I imagine um, all of us uh, are uh, faithful and consistent to different degrees in our personal worship time at home, and yet uh, Sunday morning is an opportunity for us to gather together and read your word together and pray together and, and listen to your word and consider it and meditate on it together. And so we thank you for that wonderful privilege. And we pray that you would uh, use it in our hearts and in our lives these next few minutes um, to draw us closer to Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is not John who wrote the, le- the, the gospel that we're reading. That's John the Apostle, one of the twelve. We're going to see him called uh, soon here. Uh, different John, John the Baptist. We meet John the Baptist in the first two gospels, Matthew and Mark, as a grown-up. So he's uh, in the wilderness preaching about the coming Messiah, baptizing people. <clears throat> we get a little more insight into uh, John the Baptist in Luke. We see him in his childhood. We see the circumstances surrounding his birth. (coughs) We actually see that Jesus and John the Baptist are cousins, second cousins. Their their mothers, Mary and Elizabeth, are first cousins. Um, And both Jesus and John the Baptist are born through miraculous circumstances. Jesus is born to Mary, who is a virgin, and John the Baptist is born to Elizabeth, who is very old and, and beyond her uh, you know, the point where she can physically, naturally give birth to a child. Um, and yet, through these two kind of miraculous pregnancies uh, take place. Jesus and John the Baptist are, are born relatively uh, close to one another. So we see all of that in, in Luke. So we kind of hodgepodge together uh, Matthew and Mark, where we see John the Baptist as a grown-up, and Luke, where we see the circumstances around his birth. John goes back even further. Right, it kind of kind of goes back before <coughs> John the Baptist's birth to uh, when he was actually sent from God, called by God into the world. Right, like kind of before you know the it's kind of looking back into the mind of God, the will of God, the purpose of God to send John into the world uh, on a specific mission. So God sent Jesus into the world on a specific mission. Right, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, right? um, uh, to, to give his life as a, as a ransom for many. Right? God sent Jesus into the world to live a perfect life and fulfill the righteous requirement of God and to be crucified and to die as a sacrifice for sinners and to satisfy the wrath of God and then to be raised from the dead, resurrected on the third day so that anyone who trusts in him... <coughs> can be saved and reconciled to God. That's the mission that God sent Jesus into the world for, and God sent John the Baptist in the world for a specific mission as well, namely to testify about Jesus. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. <coughs> so, the, uh, the mission that God sent John the Baptist into the world uh, to do was to bear witness about Christ right? Jesus is the light of the world. Your job, John, is to testify about and to bear witness about Jesus, the light of the world. Verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about 
the light. <coughs> so, John the Baptist uh, has this particular mission. I don't want you to be the light. I don't, you know, I, I want your, the entirety of your mission, John, is to point away from yourself and to point to someone else, to deflect the glory and honor that otherwise might come to you and to redirect it to someone else, to, to Jesus. <coughs> it's as if God pulled John the Baptist aside and said, you know, um, a successful ministry for you, based on what I'm calling you to do, uh, you're going to be poor, you're going to be homeless, you're going to live in the woods, you're going to eat bugs, no one will ever know or care particularly who you are, no one's going to celebrate you, no one's going to talk about how great you are. In fact, the better that you do your job, the less people are going to know you, care about you, talk about you. And the more their attention is going to be drawn to someone else other than you. <coughs> that's the person that's going to get your attention. That's the person that's going to get your honor, right? Not, not you. You're going to labor for your entire life in relative anonymity. You're never going to get the credit that you uh, are due. You're never going to get the honor that you otherwise would have gotten. You are to deflect that away from yourself. And then all of this is going to come to a head when you, at the culmination of your life, you're going to speak truth to someone in power <coughs> and uh, he's going to kill you, right? You're, you're going to call out a government official for his unrepentant sin. He's going to be upset. He's going to have you killed. And, then, and so you're going to you know, spend your life deflecting attention to someone else other than you and then you're going to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's the, the life, the mission that God called John the Baptist to. It's a tough mission. It's a, it's a difficult calling. And yet, in a very real sense, it's the same calling that God has given to us as followers of Jesus. It's not like God says to John the Baptist, I want you to have this special, unique calling where you point away from yourself and point to Jesus but then all of these other Christians, they are going to live a life where they are to draw attention to themselves and they are to absorb and kind of hoard all of the glory and honor that's kind of floating around out there. God wants us, just like John the Baptist, to redirect attention and glory and honor away from ourselves toward Jesus, our King and our Savior. Just this, the same mission that God gave to John the Baptist is the same mission that God has given to all of us. Being a faithful Christian might mean that you get pushed out of the spotlight. It might mean that you spend your entire life making much of Jesus and not making much of yourself, not getting the credit that you deserve, not getting the recognition or accolades that you deserve. That you spend your entire life making someone else famous, making someone else look good making sure that people hear about someone else, know about, care about, grow to love someone else rather than you. <clears throat> See, we have this innate desire baked into our souls by virtue of being human beings, living in a, a world. The world wants to kind of insist that joy and happiness is found in receiving and obtaining and kind of keeping and, and collecting glory and honor 
status, prestige, affirmation, right? I, I want people around me to say and think good things about me, and I want to hear them say and think good things uh, about me. And that is, w- when I get that, that's when I will be at my most uh, happy. That's when I will be most satisfied. And if that's the case, if that's true, if that, if that principle of the world that we are most satisfied, most happy, most filled with joy, most fulfilled in this life, when we are being made much of, when we are being celebrated, then God has called us to, frankly, a life that is not as good as, as, it, as we could. But, but the, the truth of the gospel, right, the, the, the calling that God has given us as Christians is to live and to make our lives about someone else other than us, to deflect glory and honor to someone else rather than ourselves. And the principle that undergirds that calling is that that's actually a more satisfying, more enjoyable life. It kind of pushes back against the world's value that says, when you are made much of, that is the, the best life you could have. The most joy you could experience is when you are being made much of. And the principle that undergirds the gospel says the most joy that you can experience, right, the most fulfillment that you can experience is not when you are made much of, despite what the world will tell you. Rather, the most joy and fulfillment you can experience is when Christ is being made much of, and specifically when Christ is being made much of through you, through you pointing away from yourself and pointing to Jesus, through you recognizing that you are not the light, but that your job is to bear witness about, about the light. God's calling us as Christians to not to celebrate ourselves, but to make sure that Christ is celebrated. Not to be remembered, but to make sure that Christ is remembered. Not to get glory and honor, but to make sure that Christ gets glory and, and honor. And before we move on to verse 15, I want to just kind of consider three practical, because I mean that's a, a, a kind of a theoretical a theoretical reality, right? God wants us to make much of Jesus. God wants us to bear witness to Jesus. He wants us to recognize that we are not the centerpiece of his redemptive plan, but we are someone who is tasked with pointing others' attention to that person who is the center of his redemptive plan. So, be that as it may, this kind of abstract reality of, of what God has called us to, three practical ways that we can actively point away from ourselves and point to Jesus. You know, direct other people's attention away from ourselves and direct it to Jesus. One is uh, very clear, um, just uh, evangelism, right? Practicing uh, evangelism is is a way that we can uh, faithfully bear witness about the light, right? When you tell someone about Jesus, when you proclaim the good news of the gospel, when you explain that God has made a way for them to be saved, that Jesus has come into the world, lived in their place, died in their place, been raised from the dead, and that they can be reconciled to Jesus if they trust in him. When you invite others to trust in Jesus and to be saved through his grace, you are bearing witness about the light of, of Christ. That's one. But you can also bear witness about the light of Christ, not just through evangelism, sharing the gospel with people don't, who don't know Christ, but also through discipling others through pursuing and drawing near to uh, other Christians and helping them to follow Jesus. It's a way to bear witness about the light, right? Encouraging them, edifying them, speaking truth into their lives, reading good books with them, praying for them, praying with them, holding them accountable, right? <coughs> There's a, 
I mean, discipleship can look like in any number of different things, but when we are cultivating, intentionally cultivating, discipling relationships with others, we are bearing witness about the light. So evangelism, discipling others. And a third, which is probably, which is, you know, worth not overlooking, a third would just be living a godly life. You can bear witness about Jesus and seek to make Jesus famous rather than yourself just by living a life of personal godliness and and holiness and repentance, practicing the spiritual disciplines, cultivating the ordinary means of grace in your life, reading your Bible, spending time in prayer, being a faithful member of a local church, attending, giving, serving, loving God and prioritizing his word and obedience to his word over your own preferences, loving your neighbor and prioritizing their needs over and above yourself and your own desires. When you live a life of personal godliness, that stands out in a world, a world that's marked by living for yourself, right? You know, you do you, live your truth, follow your heart, be true to yourself. When you see a Christian who's not living for themselves, for their self, but they're living for God, they're living to obey God's word, they're living for their neighbors, they're living to love and serve others rather than themselves, that's countercultural. That's, that runs counter to the values of the world. And so that counterculturalness of the godly Christian life is inevitably going to invite people to look at it and observe it, and it's going to prompt them to consider the reasons behind it. It's going to prompt them to consider the God who commanded you to live like that. So when we see God telling John the Baptist, you're not the light, but you came to bear witness about the light, and when we consider how we, like John the Baptist, have been called to not be the light, but to bear witness about the light, it's worth uh, considering any number of ways to do it, some of which are evangelism, discipleship, and just personal uh, personal godliness. So, man sent from God, name was John, came as a witness, bear witness about the light. He was not the light, but he was to bear witness about the light. <coughs> now, so we've considered uh, this, this, like, how that feels for us as the people who have been called to that, right? Uh, John the Baptist, you're not the light. Your job is to bear witness about the light. But it's worth considering, because I've, I've heard this objection as I've interacted with non-believers before. This idea that God wants people to bear witness to Christ. This idea that God wants people to spend their life trying to make Jesus more famous, trying to bring glory and honor to Christ makes people uncomfortable. It makes God seem selfish. It makes God seem needy. Why? If God is God, and God is really self-sufficient, and God doesn't need anything from anyone, then why would God care if anyone acknowledges him? Why would God care if anyone bears witness about him and his light? Why would God care if anyone tells anyone else about him? Why would, why would God be jealous for his own glory if he is infinitely glorious and doesn't need anything from the people that he created? Seems needy, seems selfish, seems arrogant. 
mean, it's not, that's, not a, that's not a trait that we find attractive in other human beings, right? I want you to validate me all the time. I want you to affirm me all the time. I want you to celebrate me. I want you to glorify me and exalt me and make much of me. That doesn't make, that's not a compelling set of character traits in another human being. So why is it appropriate for God and not uh, necessarily appropriate for human beings? Right? We like people that are stable, they're not fragile. They're not needy. They're not constantly seeking approval and affirmation. They're not constantly uh, wanting people to celebrate them and talk, talk about how great they are. So why is it okay for God to want his people to bear witness about him? And does, it not, does that not imply that God is narcissistic or something like that? Lots of guys will give you lots of different answers to that question. How can God demand worship from his people? How can God demand that his people bear witness about him and not be narcissistic? One, one answer that I thought was particularly compelling came in the form of a, a syllogism, right? A if, a if this, or like, yeah, like these are the premises, and if these are true, then the, the conclusion follows from them. And so premise one was when someone loves someone else, if you, if you can kind of envision a person, person A who loves person B, uh, what it means to love someone else the, the, the person who loves someone else is going to desire and pursue and do everything in their power to secure happiness and joy for the person that they love, even if it comes at great expense to themselves. So premise one, if you love someone, you're going to seek their happiness, their joy, even if it's, even if it's costly to you personally. Premise two, for us as creatures... As human beings who've been made in God's image, the, mo- the, the, the truest and best happiness and joy that we can ever experience comes from knowing and seeing and enjoying and worshiping Jesus as our great God and Savior. So premise one, if you love someone, you're going to try to do anything and everything you can to ensure that they experience the most joy that they can. Premise two, the most joy a human being can experience is when they behold and, and gaze upon and actually bear witness to others about the light of this glorious God that loves them and that has saved them. And so then the conclusion that follows from those two premises is when Jesus invites or commands his people to bear witness about him, when he commands them to love him and worship him and ascribe glory to him. This is not an act of narcissism. It's not an act of, I need, you know, I need something from these people. It's not an act of, it's not a toxic, you know, abusive leader. It's an act of love. When Jesus invites us to worship him and to bear witness to others about him, he's inviting us to do the thing that he knows is going to bring us the most joy in the grand scheme of things. He's inviting us to behold and see and experience and enjoy and then tell others about and invite others into that experience with us, knowing that that is all going to be what results in our greatest joy. So Jesus invites us to worship him and to bear witness about him, not because he's a narcissist, but because he loves us, because it's the kindest, uh, most generous, loving, you know, gracious others-centered, as it were, thing that he, could, that he could do is to invite us to worship him. And what's also interesting is that 
when God calls us to bear witness about the light that is Jesus, he's not calling us to do anything that he himself has not has not done. Uh, John chapter 15, verses 20, uh, yeah, verse 26 and 27, uh, reads about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It says, uh, when the Helper, when the Holy Spirit comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he, the Holy Spirit, will bear witness about me. And so you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So the same bearing witness that God calls John the Baptist to do, the same bearing witness that God calls his people to do, is the same exact thing that the Holy Spirit has been doing for all of eternity and that the Holy Spirit will be doing for all of eternity. Bearing witness to, testifying about, and speaking about, and proclaiming the excellency and the glory of Jesus. So that's, that's kind of what we see about John the Baptist in verses 6 through 8, right? That he's been sent from God with a mission from God to bear witness about Jesus Christ, right? And he, he, he himself is not the light, so he has this, uh, the, the ministry of John the Baptist is emphatically one where he is not at the center of it, but someone else is. He's pointing away from himself and pointing to Jesus for the entirety of his ministry. Then in verses 9 through 14, which we're going to skip over, because we're going to look at them uh, next week. Uh, we're going to see just more about Jesus as the light of the world, Jesus uh, as the word of God who has become flesh and come into the world. But then in verse 15, we see this parenthetical note about John the Baptist uh, that, that is speaking about how he relates to the light of the world that's been discussed in the verses preceding it. It says, John bore witness, exactly what God had called him to, John bore witness about him, about the light of the world, about Christ, the word who has become flesh. John bore witness about him and cried, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. So this is a, kind of a strange, you know, kind of, thing that, that John uh, says and kind of outlines here. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So he says, the, the Messiah, the light of the world, who I've been tasked with bearing witness about, uh, he is going to come. So the first part, he who comes after me is fairly self-evident, right? John is there speaking, preaching, baptizing, kind of discharging the duties of his ministry, and Jesus has not uh, arrived and stepped into his public ministry yet. So there's a sense in which John came first, Jesus came second, and Jesus is the one who comes after John. But he also says, he who comes after me, he ranks before me. So when, G when John says that Jesus ranks before him, he means Jesus is higher than me, better than me, more important than me, more glorious than me, right? I am nothing compared to his greatness. He is the savior of sinners. I am the guy whose job is to tell you about the, sin, the savior of, of sinners. He is the light. I am the guy who bears witness about the light. And so chronologically, 
John comes first. Jesus comes after. But in terms of status and preeminence, Jesus ranks before John because he is more important and he is more glorious. This is he who comes after me chronologically ranks before me in terms of status and preeminence because he was before me. Which is strange because he had literally just said, he who comes after, so, so Jesus is the one who comes after John, but Jesus was before John. Which is speaking to the divinity of Christ, the, the pre-existence of Christ in eternity past, the fact that Jesus is the second person of the, of the Trinity who created all things. This exact reality that, that Jesus has existed for all of eternity, that Jesus predates and, and kind of comes before anyone and everyone, anything that you can see, anything in the created world, Jesus comes before it. This is illustrated um, further in John chapter 8. There's an exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders. And he says, uh, Jesus says, If anyone keeps my word, they will never die. Bold statement, right? If you believe in me, if you keep my word, you will live forever and you will never die. And the religious leaders are not convinced. They are a little skeptical. And so they say, how can you claim that if someone keeps your word, they will never die? Uh, Ab- our father Abraham died. Are you claiming that you are greater than Abraham? Are you claiming that you are uh, you know, more powerful than the, the, the father and essentially the founder of our faith, Abraham. And Jesus says, actually, Abraham and I are buddies. He, Abraham rejoiced to see my, Abraham was a big fan of mine. Abraham liked me, and he, uh, yeah, he and I are, are, are pretty close. And then they're like, that's absurd, Jesus. You are claiming that you have seen Abraham. You've spoken to Abraham. You know the inner workings of Abraham's thoughts in his mind. You're 30 years old, man. Abraham lived over a thousand years ago. How can you, a 30-year-old man, claim to have seen or spoken to Abraham? And Jesus says, before Abraham was ever even born, I am. In other words, uh, I may have come after Abraham chronologically speaking, just like I came after John, but I was before Abraham. I existed before Abraham ever existed. I was the one who created Abraham, and so I came before him. Even though I came after him, I also came uh, before, before him. So these three kind of truths about John the Baptist uh, that we see here in verse 15, one is that Uh, are three things that John the Baptist is telling us about Jesus. One is that Jesus chronologically came after John the Baptist. Two is that Jesus outranks John the Baptist in terms of his preeminence and in terms of his status and his importance. And then three, uh, Jesus is... existed before John the Baptist ever existed. So he's fully God. He existed in eternity past, well before John was ever born or conceived. Then we can skip down to verse 19. We're going to see a little bit more. In verses 16 to 18, we're going to uh, have a little bit more commentary about uh, Jesus himself. But if we skip down to verse 19, we're going to uh, pick up on an episode between John the Baptist and the religious leaders in Israel. And we're going to see him kind of, um, you know, 
actually fulfill the mission and the calling that God had called him to up in verses 6 through 8. So verse 19, it says, And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Right? So, John the Baptist is approached by religious leaders. Who are you? What's your deal? You know, we want to know on whose authority you are uh, making these kinds of, of claims and, and kind of discharging this particular ministry. And John confessed and did not deny, but said, I am not the Christ. That's his opening. So, again, uh, John was not the light, but John ta- was tasked with bearing witness about the light. And so the first thing he says is, I'm not the light. I'm not the Christ. The word Christ, uh, same as the word Messiah. It's this big figure in the Old Testament. right? All of the promises that God made to his people all throughout the Old Testament, you know, I am going to save you. I'm going to bring you into the promised land. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to defeat your enemies. I am going to gather you to myself. I'm going to, um, you will be my people and I will be your God. All of these promises that God made to his people over the courses of centuries, they all kind of got stacked up into this one big thing and they all kind of got put onto the shoulders of one iconic figure named the Messiah. The Messiah was the one who was to come that is going to fulfill all of God's promises that he has made to us. And so whenever anyone comes with, a, with something new or novel or different or sensational, kind of like John the Baptist's ministry here in the wilderness, people would start to think, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the guy who's going to fulfill all of God's promises. And they say, are you the Christ? He says, I am not the, the Christ. I said, all right, well, what then? Verse 21, what then? Are you Elijah? So another figure that was uh, kind of being anticipated in the uh, in the Old Testament in the 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 days of Jesus, you know, when the Gospels were written, was uh, a a recurrence of or a reincarnation, as it were, of the prophet uh, Elijah. There were some some uh, unique circumstances surrounding the end of Elijah's life. He never died. If you read Second um, Kings chapter 2, you can kind of read more details about it. But the long and short of it is that uh, Elijah's walking along. There's a, a chariot uh, made of fire that comes down from heaven. Uh, it's being pulled by horses who are also made of fire. And Elijah gets into this chariot made of fire and is taken directly up to heaven and he never dies. And so that, those weird circumstances around the end of Elijah's life kind of prompted people to think, maybe Elijah's going to come back. Maybe, maybe when the Messiah comes at the end of all things to, to fulfill all of God's promises to us, maybe just prior to that, uh, Elijah's going to come back since he never died and he is going to, um, he's going to, to have a ministry that precedes the coming of the Messiah. And that, uh, that idea of expecting Elijah to come back is based off of a verse in Malachi, Malachi 4, verse 5, which says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So the thought was, Elijah's going to come back, He'll probably come down from heaven in some sort of miraculous way, just like he went up into heaven. 
And then right after Elijah comes back, we're going to then see the Messiah who's going to destroy the enemies of God, save the people of God, and bring in the, the, next, uh, the next age. So, so John, are you the Messiah? No, I'm not. Okay, well then you must be uh, Elijah. And he says, no, I'm not. <coughs> Which is interesting because in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they kind of identify John the Baptist as an Elijah-like figure. Almost like John isn't even aware. It's like he doesn't, maybe no one sent him an email. Like, that he actually is, you know, they, they, uh, you know the other Gospels say John uh, will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, that John is the Elijah who is to come. And one says that Elijah, referring, one Jesus says, Elijah has already come, referring to John. So presumably, if John is going to be consistent with the other three Gospels, when they say, are you Elijah? He would say, yeah, I am. I'm the, I am the guy who's going to come just before the Messiah, just like was anticipated in Malachi 4. And so I come in the spirit. And my, I, I look like Elijah. I dress like Elijah. I um, have a ministry that's similar to that of, of Elijah. So you could, in good conscience, answer this question, yes, John, John could have. He answered no, um, presumably just because he was just thinking very literally, right? Like if, if your expectation, if your question is, am I literally Elijah? the same guy who was taken up into heaven in a a chariot of fire, am am I that person reincarnated, you know, reassumed back down into uh, humanity? Um, No, he's thinking, no, I'm not. I'm a different guy, right? I have have different parents. I have different DNA. So, So I may have a ministry that looks like Elijah's. I may have a lifestyle that looks like Elijah's all of which is true, but in a literal sense, I am not Elijah, I'm John, I'm a different person. So that could be why John answers this question this way, despite the fact that other Gospels seem to refer to him as uh, the coming Elijah. But he says, I'm not, I'm not Elijah, I'm John. Are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? This is a reference to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, where Moses promised that God was going to raise up another prophet like him, a prophet who would speak the word of God to the people of God. And most teachers in Israel at the time kind of associated this uh, prophetic figure that was anticipated in Deuteronomy 18, they associated him with the Messiah uh, himself. And so it's kind of like they're just asking the same question over and over. Are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet, i.e. the Messiah? No. Right? He keeps kind of saying, no, no, no. And they're like, all right, well, then you tell us who you are. Right? We can't go back to the people who sent us without an answer of who you are. So you tell us, what do you say about yourself? And his answer comes from Isaiah 40. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. So again, this is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The book of Isaiah is, is, um, is an, interesting, it's an interesting structure to the book of Isaiah. There are 66 chapters. And the first 39 chapters-ish, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are heavy on judgment. Judgment for sin and pride and rebellion. Uh, judgment against Israel. Judgment against the nations, right? A lot, a lot of judgment in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, and then the last 27 
uh, chapters of the book of Isaiah are heavy on mercy and renewal, right? God's going to gather his people back from the exile. He's going to save them and establish them forever in the promised land. So Isaiah is interesting. It kind of, it almost parallels your whole Bible, right? The Bible has 66 books, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Old Testament speaks a lot about judgment. New Testament speaks a lot about mercy. Obviously, that's not exclusively true to either one, but those are some some general themes. And the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters, 39 of which uh, speak a lot about judgment, 27 of which speak a lot about about mercy. And so uh, Isaiah 40 would essentially be the very beginning of that second section of Isaiah. There's a very clear, you can see it if you flip to it, a clear break between Isaiah 39 and 40. The, the style of writing changes. You know, it's, so, so Isaiah 40, verse 3, which is what John's quoting here, is the very beginning of this new section of Isaiah. The point of which is that God is going to bring his people back from exile. Right? He sent them into exile because of their sin and because of their rebellion. It's this judgment, and now he's going to bring them back back to the promised land, back into his presence, back to enjoy his grace and his mercy and his provision. And chapter 40, verse 3 says, when that's happening, when the people of God are going to be um, brought back from exile, back into the promised land, there's going to be this guy who metaphorically goes before them and kind of um, improves the roads. I mean, like, you know, straightens out all these roads that are windy and curvy and, and uh, bring, you know, levels them out so that there's not a bunch of really high peaks and valleys. There's going to be someone that goes before the people of God that makes the, the way possible for them to come back from exile back into the promised land. And so John is picking up that theme and saying, just like Isaiah was anticipating someone to metaphorically make the path straight for the people of God to come back into the presence of God, so too I am going to go before the Messiah and prepare the way for him to come and save his people from their sins so that they can return back into the presence of God and back into a restored right relationship with God, right? The people of God that were being brought from exile back into the presence of God, that's going to happen again in a newer, better, truer sense as Jesus saves his people from their sins, and I am going to play a role in that of preparing the way for that to happen. So I'm not the Messiah, though I am related to him. I'm not uh, Elijah, though my life and ministry looks a lot like Elijah's life and ministry. I'm just a guy who comes before the guy. Right? I'm, I'm a guy whose job is to point away from myself and point to the guy so that that guy can do his job and that guy can get all the credit for having done his job. I want zero credit and I want the guy whose way I am preparing to get all of the credit. Verse 24. It says, Now uh, they had been sent from the Pharisees. Which could, could be an accurate rendering, or it might, say, it, it might also be saying the Pharisees who were among them. It's kind of, kind of a tricky, uh, tricky in the original language. But uh, they've been sent from the Pharisees, or the Pharisees among them asked, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? 
Right? They're saying, if you're not the Messiah, which you say that you're not, if you're not Elijah, which you say that you're not, if you're not the prophet like Moses that was predicted and that we have been anticipating, which you have said that you are not, then what gives you the right, what gives you the authority to have this ministry that you are having? What, you know, on whose, on, on what basis, on whose authority do you teach with such power? Uh, and do you, are you baptized? Where are your credentials to baptize all of these people, right? We are the religious aristocracy leadership. So we are the priests and Levites from Jerusalem. We are the Pharisees or have been sent from the the Pharisees. We are the religious ruling class. You're just some guy. So how can you be out here baptizing people? If anyone should be baptizing anyone, it should be us baptizing people, not you. Who do you think you are? And John answers, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So, who do I think that I am? Right? Why am I baptizing? Why am I engaging in this ministry despite not having all of the qualifications and all of the certifications that you say that I need to have? Who am I? I just told you, I'm not anyone. I'm, 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 uh, I'm, a nobody who is telling people about someone else other than my myself, right? The, the consistent refrain in John the Baptist's ministry is, it's not about me. I'm not here trying to prop myself up. I'm not here trying to burnish my own reputation. I'm not trying to build my, my brand, right? My ministry is decidedly not about me. It is decidedly about someone else. I am pointing to Jesus, which is very much in line with what God called John the Baptist to do, which is to be a witness to the light of Christ. Don't be the light, but be a witness about the, the light. And virtually everywhere we see John, that's exactly what's happening, right? Jesus must increase and I must decrease. He is the one, uh, he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the one, right? I baptize with water. Anyone can do that. I baptize with water, but, but among you is one uh, who's, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. In the other gospels, it says he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I am not the Messiah. I'm just some guy telling you who the Messiah is. But the Messiah is coming. He's the person whose way I am preparing. And, and rest assured, as soon as you see me, which is literally what's happening right then, right? As soon as you see me, you can know that the Messiah is going to be coming right behind me. And so if you're concerned about my baptism, which is done with water, then you're not going to know what to do with yourselves when you see the, the baptism of Jesus, which is going to be done with fire and with the whole... Right? I, I am a, a human being. I'm a prophet, to be sure, but a human being nonetheless. The Messiah who's coming is God who has become a man, who has come here to, to save us. And so he is so far beyond me. He is so high above me that I am not even worthy to 
uh, untie. I'm not even worthy to do this menial slave servant task to, to take off his shoes and to, to go, you know, wash them and store them or something, right? That's how big of a deal Jesus is and how small I am compared to the infinite glory of Jesus. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. The main thrust that's continually continually recurring throughout John the Baptist's ministry is that Jesus is a big deal. I'm not a big deal. Jesus is the Lamb of God. I am not. I am a prophet, and my job is to just always be pointing away from myself and toward someone else, toward Jesus. Don't look at me, look at Jesus. Don't trust in me, trust in Jesus. Don't uh, give any glory or honor or praise to me because I don't deserve it. Instead, give it to Jesus. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was, was baptizing. So the big idea... The, the, the big take-home from our text today, and we're, again, we're going we're gonna to see this throughout the entire life of John, but what we see particularly in these first 35 verses of the book of John is that Jesus, God was calling John to spend his life, and Jesus is calling us to spend our lives looking away from ourselves and looking to Jesus, Right? Uh, right, looking away, like we are not our own savior, right? Look, look away from yourself and look to Jesus as your savior and your treasure and uh, the one who is going to satisfy your soul. And God wants us to spend our lives not just looking away from ourselves and looking to Jesus, but, but pointing away from ourselves and pointing to Jesus, pointing others to Jesus as their Savior and as their, their treasure. So, so don't trust in yourself, but trust in Jesus. And bear witness, not to yourself and to your own glory, but bear witness to Jesus and to his glory, to, to deflect honor and glory that might otherwise come to you and deflect it away and ascribe it to Jesus the the King. Our job as followers of Christ is to make Jesus famous. It's to see to it that Jesus is celebrated. Not for us to be celebrated ourselves, but to see to it that Jesus is celebrated. We were, the, the, the whole point of for what, of the whole reason why we were created, the, the, the point of our existence is to make much of Jesus and to celebrate Jesus and to see to it that Jesus is celebrated and made famous because he is worthy of all glory and all honor. And God is calling us, along with John the Baptist, to invest our lives in that way, pointing away from ourselves and pointing to Jesus, testifying about him and making much of him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the person and work of Jesus. We thank you for the Messiah, the light of the world, who came to seek and save lost sinners, who came to give his life as a ransom for us. We thank you for what Christ has done through his incarnation and his life and his death and his resurrection to save us from our sin. We thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist, 
sent from God, came as a witness to bear witness uh, about the light of the salvation of Christ. And we pray that you could, we pray that you would help us, like John the Baptist, to look away from ourselves and look to Jesus and to point away from ourselves and to point others to Jesus and to ascribe glory and honor to him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.